Well, let's go ahead and jump into the Word, so do me a favor and find a Bible. Track one down. We've got them in baskets around here. Um, I think, I looked at it and I forgot to jot it down. I want to say we're on page 822 in the Bibles that we have here. We're in Mark chapter 10 now. So we're marching through this book of Mark and we're looking at these uh, different events coming out of the book of Mark. And this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about one of the convictions that I have Uh, before I read uh, the text and then we'll pray over it. Um, One of the convictions that I have in ministry is that the Word of God is the authority, that God communicates to us through His Word. And one of the things that I feel responsible then to do is to let the Word set the agenda. Uh, So each week, I encourage you guys to open up a Bible because I think that's significant. I hope that you're, hopefully you're being trained by coming to church how to read the Bible and learn for yourself. Now, in my group this week, people admitted, I don't do that. Like, I know you're going to put it up on the screen, and I don't even bother trying to find a Bible on the floor. I just listen, I listen, and I watch on the screen. That's fine, but I do encourage you, if you're able, to have a Bible open in front of you, because I hope that you're tracking with me. And as we do that, one of the things that I'm, that I'm careful about is I want for God's Word to set the agenda. So whatever's here, that's what I want to communicate because I feel like that's important for the people of God to come under what, what he wants to do and what he wants to say. And the opposite of that would be to impose my ideas, to use the Bible really as a starting point for whatever it is that I want to share. And to say, here's a great idea, but let me go ahead. Here's where we're going to start, but let me really get after the stuff that I'm passionate about. So as we get into this text here, this week I was... Uh, praying and working on it, and I was realizing that there are some things here that I hope will be very helpful for you. And um, a part of doing messages like this will give us the opportunity to see little connections and nuances that if you're just reading the Bible by yourself even, if you don't slow down and ask good questions, you might even gloss over this thing. So uh, I love preaching. I love opening the Bible. I believe God wants to speak to you today. So let's go ahead and read the word, and then I'm going to pray, and we will get to work. Um, We're starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I'll read the whole thing, then I'll pray, and we'll get after it. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, uh, as, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray right now with anticipation that you're going to speak to us through it. We pray that your spirit, God, would take these stories and that you would make them come to life and you would help us to hear the voice of our risen Lord and Savior Jesus through them. Lord, would you communicate to your people and help us to recognize the way to greatness? You, you set the, the agenda for us, Lord, and it is not what we expect. So, Lord, would you help us to embrace this high calling of following the Lord himself? We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the reason why I actually included a couple different stories, because as I was looking at it this week, I realized there's a theme here. That when Mark is trying to communicate what's going on, he's developing a theme and all of these different little episodes are connected. So when you read it, you're going to notice that there's this recurring pattern going on, that the same question is asked in a couple different settings and it's helping us then to compare and contrast what's really going on. And that will help us to understand then what God wants us to learn. So it's, it, to me, I think it's significant that this, what we just read, is coming right on the heels of an event with a rich young ruler. And this individual comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, teacher, what must, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy is coming and he's asking the most important question, saying, what do I need to do in order to receive salvation and inherit eternal life? And, and this is kind of one of those crazy passages. I've spent years thinking about it and trying to wrestle through it. But, but Jesus essentially says, what do you think of the Ten Commandments? And he begins to kind of rehearse, here's the Ten Commandments. How do you read that and apply that? And the dude goes, I'm actually really good at that. I've been doing that since I was a boy. And he goes, well, hold on, pump the brakes, dude. Okay, what about the Tenth Commandment? What about this one about your desires and, and your, the things that you want and crave? And he tells him, why don't you go and sell all that you have and then give your resources away and come and follow me? And the guy goes, no way. I can't. That level of commitment, I'm happy to try to obey the Ten Commandments, but if you start really messing with my heart and my life, no way. And he walks away. And the disciples kind of, they're, they're stunned by this, and they're saying, who then can be saved? You're, Jesus, you're setting the bar way too high. You're telling people to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. There's no way anybody's going to do that. And Jesus is really trying to help us understand that. Exactly right. Nobody is going to be able to earn their way into heaven by obedience. But he says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And they, they're scratching their heads and they go, okay, 
well, we left everything to follow you. Doesn't that count for something? We left everything to be your disciple. We left relationships and all these different things. And Jesus essentially says, anything that you think you've sacrificed is really no sacrifice at all because you will be richly rewarded both in this age and in the age to come. You have not sacrificed anything because any sacrifice you've made, God is aware of that and he will richly reward you for it. And then he gives us this, this little idea here. It's, it's in verse 31. He said, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this is really the idea that we're going to see then developed in our story. That there is a way to greatness, but it is counterintuitive. There's a way to greatness, but it, it is not what you might expect. Because most what our society will do is it'll tell you there's a way to, to greatness. Here's how it works. You need to get into the best school district, okay? Prairie Hill School, right? You guys are aware of that. As we were shopping for homes, we realized, okay, there's this school district in our area that is just crushing it. They're doing such a fantastic job, and everyone's trying to move in that direction. Get your kids in the best school district, and then, as I did student ministry for a number of years, do great academically, and, and get good grades. And if you're not good academically, then be incredibly athletic. But whatever it takes, do a great job there so that you could get into a good college and get into a college with a program that you're passionate about. And on and on and on, we tell people, here's the way to greatness. You have to work really hard and you have to be really good and you can do it as long as you try really hard. And we keep pushing and promoting that thing and, and, and that's, the, that's the way that our society kind of says that this is the way to greatness. And at some point, you're going to be very successful and you're going to be very powerful. People are going to look to you and go, man, that is the pinnacle of what I want to become. You have the job that I want. And you, you just keep climbing that ladder and getting, get that way. But Jesus teaches here that the way to greatness in his kingdom is totally different. It's counterintuitive. The way to greatness is not trying to earn the way up the ladder, but it's really to descend and it's to be humble and it's to be self-sacrificial. And so we see here in the story that, that Jesus is teaching us that there are really two different worldviews at play. There are two different approaches to the Lord himself and, and one of them is unbelief and the other one is Belief and the story then, as we look at these two different events, they actually have a lot of similarities. So the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, hey, can you please do whatever we want? And he says, what do you want me to do? And they give him a request. Well, Bartimaeus does the same exact thing. They, he comes to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for, for you? And he responds in a different way. So watch this unfold. Two different worldviews or two different approaches. The first one is unbelief, and the, the request is, make me great. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that a great way to go in prayer? You're just coming before God. You're going, okay, please, before I even tell you what I need, just promise me you're going to do whatever I ask. That's actually something that my daughter Reese will do with me. Sometimes she'll come up to me, we do this thing where we, we make deals, like, hey, if you do this, this is, you know, I'll do this for you, and we go, deal, and we shake on it. Well, sometimes she'll come to me and she'll go, daddy, I want you to, to deal me. And I'll go, hold on, sweetheart, I don't even know what you're asking for yet. Exactly, deal me, deal me. She wants to know that I'm going to 
Tell her yes, even before she makes the request. That's what these guys are doing. James and John come before the Lord and they say, hey, just do whatever we request of you. And he says, what would you like for me to do? And they say, we want to be great. They say, would it be possible for you? We know you're teaching that you're going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. We don't really get that. But we know you're going to be glorified because you're the Messiah. So when you come in glory, when you arrive in that glorious position, will you please give us the best seats to watch this thing unfold? Give us the seat at your right and your left. Will you make us great? So they're approaching the Lord with this desire. I want to be great. I want people to know how awesome I am. I want to have this seat of honor. I want, to, I want for Jesus to just elevate me so that everyone looks at me and goes, that is the most desirable thing. I wish I could be like him. They're approaching him with unbelief, wanting him to do something for them. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They are asking, please be a benefit to me. And many people still approach Jesus like this. Many people think that Jesus is this person who has all kinds of power and authority. And what we have to do then is figure out a way to go to him and say, hey, please grant me whatever I ask. Oh, by the way, here's what I want. I want to be great. I want you to help me achieve greatness. I told you about this last week. There was a sociologist, Christian Smith, and back in 06, he and his ministry partner did a bunch of research and they published it. They were looking at the, the spiritual lives of youth in the American culture. And they coined this little thing. They said, this is what is prevalent in the majority of youth. It's what we call moralistic therapeutic deism. It's this, I know it's a, you know, for, it's a big word. It's a very expensive word. But moralistic therapeutic deism, they're saying most of the youth today think there's a God, there's a deity, and he loves me and he's got a wonderful plan for me and he wants to bless me. And all I have to do then is to be a good person to be a moral individual. And he said, that's what the majority of youth are thinking today. That's approaching Jesus with unbelief. That's what the disciples are doing here. This is 2006. So what, 12 years ago now, all of these people are adults. A huge majority then of Christian culture believes that, that God exists and he loves me. And all I have to do is be a good person. That's not the gospel. I'll show you what the gospel is in just a moment, but that is not the gospel, many people are approaching God in that way, saying it's really a form of unbelief, just saying, I know you're there, but what I want you to do is to bend to my will. I know you're there, and I just have to figure out how often do I really need to go to church? What kinds of service projects do I need to be engaged in? What are some of the things that I could do to make certain that you're going to bless me and make me great? And that's not Christianity, friends. That is not Christianity. That's a posture of unbelief. Let me share with you a few different problems with this approach. First, it's naive. It's naive. In fact, Jesus replies to the guys and he says, you don't even understand what you're asking for in verse 38. You, you don't have a clue what it is that you're proposing. You have no idea. And he says, he asks a series of questions. Can, so, so they're naive. They're, 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 um, they're not understanding what it is that God is up to. Another thing that's wrong with this approach is that it doesn't take into account suffering. He asks the question, could you really 
drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. Here's what he's pointing out. He's about to go to the cross and drink the cup of the wrath of God. And he's about to go through an experience of tremendous suffering and pain. He's going to the, cr- to the cross in order to die for sin. And he's saying, do you really think you could follow me in that way? And they say, you know, th- because they're naive, they're like, you bet, we got this. We're going to follow you. We could do whatever cup you're talking about. I'll have some of that too. I'm, we're going to follow you. And he's like, you will experience pain and suffering. But again, they, they're misunderstanding what the Lord is up to. They're misunderstanding what he's doing, and they're not taking into account the pain and the suffering. Another thing that's wrong with this worldview is it rubs people wrong. When we think we approach God and we just try to do the right thing so he can bless us, it irritates other people. If we're always thinking, I need to be at the top, and other people are going to serve me and bow down to me and glorify me, it'll rub a lot of people wrong. I'm on the getting rubbed wrong side of things. When I see Christians, and I'm thinking mainly of, you know, spiritual leaders who are platforming themselves and getting other Christians to kind of go, I love these guys, they're my favorite. And that, that rubs me wrong. When we think that it's all about us and our glory, it's offensive to other people and, and it's dishonoring to God. It rubs people wrong. It's about, it's self-serving and self-seeking. And you see that as Jesus begins to teach them what you're proposing is very similar to unbelievers and their leadership structure. The rulers lord it over the people and they cause them to do whatever that they want them to do. They make them serve. They make them slaves. That's not how it should be as a disciple of Christ. He's saying for you, you need to humbly serve and be willing to sacrifice for the good of other people. Now, here's the last thing about this approach that's wrong. It's blind. And I'll show you why I use that word in just a moment, but it is blind to the things of God. When you approach God in this way saying, Jesus, I just want you to make me great. You're, you're, you're closing your eyes to the spiritual reality of what, what God wants to do through you. And it's blind. And the disciples, I don't even think they're aware of it, but I think they're blind to the things of God. So this approach is the approach of unbelief that says, make me great. And I wish uh, that it were unique to them, but it's not. I mean, I, I'm going to share a couple stories about myself, but man, these are the inner circle, the James and John, the people who spent time with Jesus, and they are revealing their unbelief here. So any of us that think, you know what, I go to church, I've been at this thing for a long time, we have to be careful that we don't think we're immune to this. We also will have this expression of unbelief if we approach the Lord in this way. So let me tell you a couple stories about myself uh, to see if that helps you identify this in your own heart. Um, I remember when I first started in youth ministry, um, I was so pumped about what God was going to do through me. And I was so excited about how God was going to leverage this ministry to do incredible things um, in the community. And, and then I got started in it and I realized, oh, this isn't going to be as glorious as I thought. I'm going to be hanging out with a bunch of stinky kids in a stinky basement. And I remember um, Ash was in Chicago at that time, and we went to a church service in Chicago, and I was just crying afterwards. And she's like, what's, what's going on with you? And I remember thinking, I'm going to be this nobody in a basement for the rest of my life. And, and it was this humbling experience because here's what I was doing. I wanted the ministry to make me look great. I wanted Jesus to take me, and if I'm willing to serve him, then let everyone know how, how awesome I am. 
And, and so that's been a, a process in my life. And, and it didn't just, I wish it were a one-off experience where God taught me humility in that moment and I'm done with that one now. And I just kind of march forward with total confidence that whatever God wants to do through me, I'm happy as long as I'm faithful. That didn't, that's not the case. A letter came in the mail a couple weeks ago and it was from one of our Beloit church members and they wrote a little note and I opened it in front of my wife, Ashley, and she goes, what's that? And um, I said, well, it's, it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and a couple people from our church um, gave me a gift card. But here's the body language and the way that I said it. I basically said to her, nobody noticed that it's Pastor Appreciation Month. And I was fishing for her to do something about it, and she did. She reached out to a bunch of people, said, hey, you know, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Send a little note to Cor, and many of you did, and that was awesome. But here's what I was doing. I was trying to say, make me look great. And you guys don't feel any guilt or shame and don't do anything unusual now as a result of it. There's all kinds of appreciation months. There's like National Donut Day and there's all, you know, if you miss the pastor appreciation month, do not sweat it. But what I was doing was I was approaching God with unbelief. What's really going to make me feel good, what's going to make me feel significant, what's going to satisfy my soul longing is if other people will notice that's a posture of unbelief and that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. But there's a second approach and this is a much better way to go to the Lord. The second approach is, is um, modeled by our friend here who's blind. Um, he comes before Jesus and he has this posture of humility. Look at it in verse 47. When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was coming by, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't come and say, hey, I've got a request. Please do whatever it is that I want. Make me look great. He comes and he calls him by this royal title, son of David. I know you're the Messiah. I know you're the king. And here's his request. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I know that I don't deserve what you could do for me, but I'm appealing to your mercy. I'm coming with humility, not trying to make myself look great, but because I recognize that you're a merciful king. And so he approaches then the throne of grace. He approaches the king himself. He approaches with this posture of belief, saying, have mercy on me. And Jesus asks him the same exact question he asked of the disciples earlier. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And he's asking them humbly, have mercy on me. I, I, I can't see, but I want to see. And he's appealing to the mercy and grace of the Lord himself. And Jesus replies in this way, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. So what we have then here is the example of what it looks like to approach Jesus with faith and what it really means then to, to, to pursue greatness. He comes and he's humble and he's desperate and he's coming and he's appealing to the mercy and grace of God. Friends, here's what I hope we would be willing to do. I hope that this morning we approach Jesus with that sort of posture. We just say, have mercy on us. We know who you are. We know how powerful you are would you please have mercy on us? Friends, we can come into church and we can pretend that we have it all together and we can put on our smiles and we can have our small talk and, and just kind of project this reality that everything's fine and well in my household. But the, the truth is, God wants us to come 
and be needy. We're needy people. He wants us to come and just say, have mercy on us. He wants us to be able to say, have mercy on us. I'm a youth pastor in a basement in Detroit. Like, have mercy on me. I just need your help. I need your help, Lord. And then whatever it is that you want to do for me, I'm going to receive that by faith. And I'm going to be totally okay with that. I'm going to trust that you're a good king and I'm going to appeal to your mercy. But whatever it is that you want to do in my life, I'm going to be happy with. But here's my request. I want to be able to see. And, and this man... He was literally blind and he gets his sight back, but he's able to see then the spiritual realities. He's able, he serves as an example of someone who's following Christ. In fact, I think the, the last little phrase there is meant to help us see that immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along this road. What is the road? It's the road to the cross. And this man then is begin, able to see what the Savior is really doing. The mission of the Messiah is to go and to die in the place of those who do not deserve it. So the two approaches, one is unbelief saying, make me great, but here's the other one. It's the one that comes humbly and says, have mercy on me. And I'm encouraging you to pursue that. So let me give you two explanations of the gospel that are here in our passage so that we could pursue that posture of belief and humility and trust in him. The first one comes in verses 33 and 34. The first explanation about the good news that God is doing for us comes in a prediction, a prophecy about what's going to happen. Verses 33 and 34, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Does this sound familiar? Last week, we heard almost the exact same thing because this is now the third time where Jesus is explaining his mission. We're going to Jerusalem. This is chapter 8. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. This is going to happen. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Chapter 9, he tells them again, here's what's happening. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. He's explaining he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. Now he's saying, chapter 10, here's the story, guys. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. And he gives us even more details this time. But here's what we need to recognize. The gospel is tied to that reality, that Jesus was willing to go to a place to die on a cross for us, that he was willing and he, was, he had a resolution about him, that he was determined, I'm going there and this is my purpose. I'm going to die but I'm going to rise again. And he explains the depth of the rejection. He said, I'll be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, but they will condemn me to death and hand me over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and ultimately kill him. And that's exactly how it played out, that they took him, they stripped his clothes off of him, they, they, they crucified him naked, but they mocked him. Are you the king of the Jews and you can't even save yourself? And they put the sign, they posted the sign above him on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, this is the charge against him, it's blasphemy, and he's pretending like he's all powerful and he's obviously not because we're killing him right now. And they pluck out his beard and they spit in his face and they ridicule him. But Jesus knew all along, this is what I've come to do. I am coming to die in the place of those who do not deserve it. 
And he's going to the cross in order to accomplish salvation. So a part of the gospel is that event. It is the reality that Jesus was willing to go and die in our place. Here's the second explanation, and it comes in verse 45. He talks about how his mission involves serving other people. And when he talks about serving other people, it looks like death. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to die. I'm going to serve people so well by doing this. I will die in their place. I will ransom them. I will bring them back from the death situation that they're in. I will redeem them. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to serve them by giving my own life in their place. I'm going to die on the cross. So he's explaining there the gospel. And many of us, we, we, I guess I want to help you understand this idea of ransom. And I don't have a great example of this, but I, I will try. Uh, my first vehicle was a Jeep Wrangler, and I loved it. As a, you know, as a teenager, being able to take a top off and the doors off and drive, and I just thought it was so cool. Um, but as it got older, it was falling apart. And so I sat down with my dad and I said, hey, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to put a 350 in this thing with a new transmission and let's rehab this thing and get this thing awesome. And so we started doing that, but I'm a college kid. I have no money. So we do this thing and all of a sudden this thing's this money pit and I can't afford to drive it. So it was awesome though, because it could almost do wheelies when you'd punch it. It, could, it was just a crazy vehicle, but it got to the point where for me to be able to drive it, I just have to constantly throw money at it and repair things. And so it sat in the parking lot of the tree farm for a while, and I began driving a little Volkswagen. And it sat there, and it started to decay. And then one day, I went out, and I looked at it, and I said, hey, what happened to my motor? And my brother, Tyler, he didn't tell me at the time. He paid me for it later, but he took the motor out and put it into one of, another vehicle. It was crazy, right? That's just tree farm stuff. Doesn't happen in the normal world, but the motor was missing. And so I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, this thing is garbage. Like, you know, it's a shell of a vehicle now. It's decaying. There's no value to this thing. And I had a student in the youth group who's a, who wanted to be a mechanic. And he's like, I will buy this thing from you for a couple hundred bucks. If it has the title and it has these different components, it's worth it to me. And I said, fine, have at it, man. And, and then he took it. And I kept checking in with him. And I said, hey, how's the Jeep? He said, nah, I didn't do anything with it. So it just sat there and it decayed even more. And here's the point. What if because of my nostalgia, I go, I'm getting this thing back. I'm going to go find wherever this Jeep is, and I'm going to pay whatever the price is, and I'm going to rehab this thing. And obviously, everything on it is going to need to be replaced. But I'm going to do that. Because I don't want this thing to decay anymore. It has value to me. That's what Jesus is doing. When he says, I'm going to go and give my life as a ransom, he's saying, I'm looking at the people who I've made in my image, that, are, that have wandered away from me, that have put themselves into, into a situation where their lives aren't even operable, and they are in this slow decay, and I'm going to do the most costly and expensive thing ever. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to ransom them. I'm going to bring them back from death. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring them back. Now, I'm using language that is offensive in our culture because we tell people, man, you are beautiful and you're wonderful and there's nothing wrong with you. But the Bible presents a different picture. If you do not trust in Christ, you are spiritually dead. If you do not have a saving faith, then your, your life doesn't just need a little bit of improvement. It needs resuscitation. 
It needs the Spirit of God to come in and for you to place your faith in Christ and for him to redeem you. And that's exactly what the gospel is, that Jesus is able to say, I'm going to lay down my perfect life for those who do not deserve it. And I'm going to pay and ransom them and bring them back from the dead. That gospel message is what Jesus is all about. It's what the Bible's all about. It's what I'm all about. It's what our church should be all about. This message of a crucified Savior dying in our place is the reason why we're having church this morning. And that gospel message, if you believe it, it will change you. You will go from being self-seeking, self-gratifying, even using spirituality as a way to try to elevate yourself and make yourself feel better, you will now, if you trust in him, you'll, be, you'll begin to be like this blind man who follows him down that path to the crucifix. And you will learn what it really means to be great because you will be descending into greatness with your king. And it is a beautiful thing. So here's the most important question from this morning. It is the question that Jesus asks both sets of individuals. It's this one, verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? And he says it again in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus says it again today. He's here by his spirit and his people and his bride. Jesus is, is making this question real to us this morning. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And what we can do, I think we've got a couple different, few different options. You can just ignore that. Going, yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to consider that. And you can just keep going and experience that slow, that slow decay. You could say, all right, dude, if you're going to ask me that question, I want you to make me great. I want you to bless me. I want you to improve my life. And you can keep pursuing that self-satisfaction and glorification. Or here's the third option, and this is what I really want for us to do. We can approach him with humility and say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Help me to see. Help me to see who you are and what you're all about. Help me to trust you. Help me to experience the power of what you're doing for me. Your willingness to die on the cross. Help me to experience the, the glory of your salvation. You're the king. Have mercy on me and let me see. And so what we find here this morning is the path to greatness and it is not what we expect. It is not this, I'm going to attain, I'm going to achieve. It is, I'm going to surrender. And Jesus is saying, in, in my kingdom, some of those who are first are actually last. But some of those who are last, who are blind, who are outcast, who, who have a hard time in life, they are the real champions of faith and they are the greatest. And I want to be pastoring a church of you guys saying, we're going to humble ourselves. We're going to pursue the greatness of God but we're going to do it humbly and ask him for his mercy and his blessing. So let's go to God now in prayer, and I'm going to invite the band to come up. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to see. Lord, we, we acknowledge that we come in with all kinds of fog and all kinds of blinders, and we come into a church service, and we're not always aware of the King of glory, but you're here. And so we're just asking, Lord, that you would give us spiritual sight to see him. Lord, we're coming before you saying, have mercy on us. Let us experience whatever it is that you want to do in and through us, Lord. We know that greatness might not look exactly like our society will, will pitch it. 
So Lord, there are great people in here this morning who are doing seemingly mundane things. Things that don't show up in a news feed and things that don't get broadcasted and told, this is awesome, look at these people, but they are by faith doing what you've called them to do and they are achieving greatness in your kingdom. Would you encourage them this morning, God, and help them be resolute in their faithfulness? Lord, for those who've not trusted in our King, for those who've never really thought about surrendering as a way to become great, I mean, that just doesn't make sense, but that's exactly what you invite us to do. What do you want, us to, what do you want for me to do, you're asking us? We, we want to surrender so that we could be great, Lord. For anyone who's not done that yet, would you give them faith right now and give them courage and help them to make it known that they're trying to follow you and trust you and believe in you? Lord, I'm sure you're doing all kinds of things in a moment like this by your spirit that I can't even predict. And so, Lord, we just lean into this moment and we want to we wanna embrace it and we, we, we want to know um, that you're at work in our church and in our hearts. And we thank you for that, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.